people born into the village never have the first clue what the outside world looks like. They are indoctrinated from birth to believe that happiness can only be found in this community and that the world outside their cloister is a scary, threatening place even if you manage to get past the creatures who govern the woods. People, no matter what influences they have on their lives, are going to be the people they are regardless of their environments or the rules they choose to be governed by. The villagers did what pretty much everyone who adopts Christianity does. They traded the sorrows and pain that held their emotions captive for another seemingly more appealing brand of bondage. Coming out from among them doesn't change what we essentially are. All it does is create an environment for every aspect of human nature, both good and bad, to replicate itself in a different environment. It is amazing to me how people downplay the gravity of their actions even when they see the consequences of them. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Here's one thing I've learned, along with most adults, it's that you flat out can't run away from your problems. You can't erase the past by reconstructing your life and attempting to manufacture a better future. You know, like confessing your sins, saying a prayer, and giving your life to an imaginary deity. Well, the people in this movie gave their lives to an imaginary sense of security and influenced other people in a way that seems very very familiar. Mm. The bottom line is that no matter what we do, life happens, and it doesn't matter what you do to dodge the less appealing bits. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this time around, we're looking at a movie that is one part entertaining, one part infuriating, and three parts encapsulation of the true definition of selfishness and deceit. I'm talking about M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, and if you haven't seen it, just be advised, we're going to spoil the shit out of it over the course of this episode. 19 pages of notes, folks. This is a new record, and I, you know, this one is going to go long. We yeah. lucked out with Life of Pi. That was an easy story to convey. Right. There's a lot going on in this movie. There's yeah. a lot of layers to it. So we're going to take it point by point, scene by scene, the way that we always do, and really, really take it apart. And I'm going to give you my thoughts on the parallels between what's going on in this movie and what goes on in your average church yeah. by the time we're done. And knowing full well that this is going to take time to pour over, my first thought was to just scrap Christians behaving badly again. But, but I could not ignore this. It's too <laughs> magnificent not to mention. So here's Shell with a quick follow-up on Greg Locke's little witch hunt from a couple weeks back. Strap in, folks. This is good. This is really good. <laughs> yes, as a follow-up to last week's story on Greg Locke threatening to reveal the witches in his congregation, Spider sent me a link about the consequences our favorite pastor has been dealing with. It turns out that if you threaten women with accusations of witchcraft, other people don't really like that, especially feminists and purported witches because they actually do exist, and while they can't call hellfire down on him, they can do what they actually did, which was send him sex toys and glitter bombs. Sounds like the name of a of a like a K-pop band. Or or sex or, toys and glitter bombs. Or like the rock girl bands of the nineties. Yes. Yeah, that too. 
(laughs) He and his church have also been getting thousands of obscene phone calls, (laughs) as well as postcards from the Church of Satan and assorted hexes and curses. Wow. The Facebook video where he complains about this is priceless. He looks so distressed. I love it. Oh, absolutely. It's great. If anyone deserves to be distressed, it's Greg Locke. Yes. But here's one thing, though. Locke's favorite Dunkin' Donuts store told him they have people calling, looking for him and trying to get him banned from getting coffee there. Oh, wow. One of the workers said callers say horrible things to them because the pastor is a frequent customer. Look, people, don't harass food service workers. Yes. No matter how they believe, they're just doing their job, and they don't deserve nastiness for doing their job. Come on now. Yeah, that's taking it a little bit too far, but I do blame him first. Yes, I'll I'll blame him for These people have their choices to make. They aren't making good ones in this regard. Right. But I'm sorry to sound like a third grader here, but he started it. Well, he did start it. It's true. Of course, Locke sees all this as persecution because he quote-unquote, told the truth. Stop acting like grown-up babies, Locke told his haters, joking that he'd buy them a pacifier. You act like we're going to stop preaching the truth of the gospel. You act like I'm going to just roll over in a corner and be like, well, you all, all that stuff I said, I didn't really mean it. No, I meant it, and I'm going to keep saying it because we're calling out witches and wizardry and sorcery and occultism in the church. We're not going to apologize and back down from that. Dude, no one gives a crap if you're preaching the gospel. Really? But you weren't preaching the gospel. You were accusing people in your congregation of witchcraft and threatening to expose them. He then has the nerve to say that he loves people enough to be hated by everyone else. Well, you know, if the world hates you, just be comforted. They hated me first. Yeah. It all goes right back to that. I know. This whole martyr complex. Yeah, seriously. But of course, his decision to focus on demonic deliverance has paid off. Since he started focusing on that, his church has added an additional service since so many people come out. I'm sure the donations are just rolling in. Yeah, because Satan is big business, especially in the context of this kind of ministry. And especially a ministry that's headed up by this kind of asshole. So, yeah, I mean, when I saw that come up in my Facebook feed, it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? We have to take five minutes or less and just let people know that this is happening because it's just so fucking priceless. It really is. I mean, I just... I'm thinking about the look on this guy's face when he's opening up packages with like dildos and glitter bombs. <laughs> it's just, and just these people are so afraid of sex to begin with yeah. that you, I mean, it's got to be doubly appalling. I mean, not, not just the insult angle of it, but just appalling from the standpoint of how these people think about sex to begin with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the context of the sex toys was <laughs> because we're talking about witchcraft. But, but I like the idea of the glitter bombs. The glitter bombs are especially nice. Oh, yeah. Like, they're pretty, <laughs> hey. Yeah, because they I mean, they could be construed as, you know, being like spells or something like right. that. Right. But they could also be like, this is craft herpes, and you're going to have it in your church and around your church forever. Mm-hmm. Because glitter never goes 
away. No, no, it really doesn't. It's going to be showing up for quite a while. It's going to be showing up for years. Oh, yeah. Literal years. Yeah, he's going to be reminded about this little faux pas for a very, very long time. Yeah, seriously. But, of course, in true Greg Locke fashion, he doesn't seem to have learned much. No. And the, the sad part is that he seems to be profiting from it. Yeah. This is why I said last time, keep an eye on this asshole, because there's a real cult vibe oh, yeah. going on here. He's going to find the cash cow in this, mm. and he's going to keep rolling with it. Yeah. And with that, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash network. Any amount of money that you can help us out with would be greatly appreciated. And literally, we're talking about a buck or so an episode. So if you can help us out in that way, we'd sure appreciate it. And we would put that money to good use to help more people get and stay unbound. That's what we're here for. That's what we're about. And I'm going to keep that part of it as short and sweet as I can. You guys know how you can help us. Likes, shares, five-star ratings, good reviews. And most importantly, tell someone new about the show this week because that's how podcasts spread. There isn't a single podcast out there that I listen to that I didn't first hear about by word of mouth. So that's very, very important. Keep it in front of people and tell someone new about us. And let's help keep this thing moving. Let's help some people get their lives back together, whether it's with your dollars or with these other things that you can do to help us. Anything that you can do to get this message out to more people is going to be of real benefit. And we thank everybody for coming back every week. We thank you in advance for the help that you're at least considering giving us. And yes, definitely be proactive. Let people know that we're here because there are so many people out there who have been victimized by this religion that frames love as hate and hate as love. And they deserve to get their lives back. And they deserve to be led in a better direction than their pastor will ever lead them. And I'm going to leave it short and sweet. This is normally where I promo the next episode. Um, to be perfectly honest, I have not thought about what we're going to do next week. Going back and forth to work, I kind of pour these things over and they sort of just come to me. I haven't had time to pour this over, to no. be perfectly honest. There's just been so much going on. But, you know, surprise episode next week. Let's just <laughs> let's just say that it's it's going to come to me sooner or later. And we're going to put together something really, really interesting for you next week. I just don't know precisely what yet. Let's <laughs> let's just be honest about it. I do, however, know what movie we're going to be doing next for Unbound at the Movies. And I have not shared this with Shell because I wanted to get a live reaction out of you over the choice that I made for the next movie. Okay. So... The next movie that we look at is not going to be a mainstream movie. It's not going to be something that everyone in the world has seen. It's also not going to really tap the evangelical side of things. The next movie on our list is a little independent film called The Spirit of Albion. And oh this God. is a movie <laughs> that we fell in love with in our Wiccan days. Oh, my. And it is it's the most evangelistic thing. Yes. That I ever saw come out of paganism. Yes. You know, paganism is not supposed to be an evangelistic religion. No. But let me tell you, this particular movie is the closest thing that you're going to get to a gospel movie. It really yeah. is. And the way that they present the concepts. And yes, there are definite tie-ins to evangelicalism because, as I've said time and time again, religion is religion is religion. So we're going to look at the way concepts are presented in this movie 
and we're going to relate it to the things that we talk about here and just make the point that the grass is never greener on the spiritual side of anything. And that's going to be in about a month or so, maybe three, four episodes out. But that idea came to me driving <laughs> to work the other day. I said, you know what? We're doing all these Hollywood flicks. Let's talk about something that maybe people haven't already seen. And let's see how it flies. So that's going to be next. <laughs> the Spirit of Albion is the name of the movie. And we're going to be looking at that probably sometime toward the middle-ish part of April. But for right now. I just want to dive right in because this is going to take some time to pour over. And this is a meaty kind of story. There's a lot going on here. And I just want to dive right in with our discussion right now on M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. So let's jump right in and immerse ourselves in this late 19th century manufactured utopia set in Covington Township, Pennsylvania. I can't help but realize we used to travel way close to where this movie takes place on route to Valley Farce back in the day. (laughs) The movie opens with this ominous music and a POV that looks as though we're looking out at something through the trees in a wood. And those woods are made to look very scary from the moment the credits roll. Very tense music, foreboding, almost threatening. And I felt like I was about to watch The Witch again, the way that this starts out. That kind of tense anticipation, like you're at the top of the first hill of the roller coaster and shit's about to go down. Well, if you think about it, the antagonist in this movie is the woods themselves. Kind of, yeah. You know, they're almost like a character. They're very moody. Yeah. And you can kind of tell when everything's at peace. You know, they'll show the woods far away through the fog. It's very... Misty. When things are good, it's sunny. And it's still foreboding, but it's less foreboding. And then when things start to tense up, yeah. yeah it's it's like all misty. Wind is all there. Yeah. And it's yeah. all gray. And yeah, there's nothing in this movie that isn't completely on purpose. Right. And I agree with that. The the woods themselves are kind of a character in and of themselves. So we get that little bit of an establishment, and then we jump immediately to a scene of someone being buried. You know, let's just make sure that it's heavy and and foreboding right from the very beginning. Someone's being buried. It's their funeral. And by the look of the people in this movie, this is taking place sometime in the past. And they all seem to be very close-knit. It's not so much a village as it is a commune. That's at least what it feels like to me. So... Now we start getting a little bit more establishment of what's going on and when. We see a gravestone, and it's a brand new gravestone with the birth and death dates of the person being buried. So, yep, it's 1897. The man in the previous scene was August Nicholson, and he was burying his six-year-old son, Daniel. And now someone who we will learn later is named Edward Walker. He's one of the elders of the town. And he's giving a very secular kind of eulogy. We don't hear much of it, but it is, in fact, very God-free. Something that I find very ironic about this movie. There are so many warnings about religion, and yet this society is about as secular as they come. So the only part of his comments that we hear are this one sentence, or these two sentences. He says, we may question ourselves at moments such as these. Did we make the right decision to settle here? Okay, so there's a little bit of establishment and a little bit of foreshadowing for things that we're going to learn later. These people didn't all grow up here. Some of them did, 
but not all of them did. And we're going to be given little snippets as we go about why they settled in this place and this particular group of people, why they settled in this place. So the funeral is basically over. And now the entire community is gathered for the funeral feast. And the message here is that this is a very close-knit community, kind of like the Amish or the Shakers, but there are distinct differences between these groups and this one. And I also thought a little bit about the Mennonites for a hot minute, mostly because of where it takes place. Mm -hmm. But this is not a religious community at all. I don't think we ever see a church or anything that denotes anything spiritual, just a common meeting house that probably has multiple functions. Yeah. Um, Even though we saw the date on the gravestone the first time I saw this movie, I thought there was something off. I couldn't place my finger on it. I'm not sure if it was the way of speech or if there was some other weird anachronism, but it was really weird. I'm like, I'm watching them wash dishes and do the things and I'm like, it seemed almost like cosplay. Yeah, it was just really weird because I've seen a lot of movies set in the past. Yeah. And there's a certain feel that's like authentic. You feel like it's authentic. This didn't feel authentic. Well, you know, to me, just watching it for the sake of entertainment, I didn't think about it that much at that point. But I definitely see what you're saying. There's There's a certain unnaturalness to what's going on here. It would be kind of macabre to be cosplaying someone's funeral. But having watched this movie the number of times that I've watched it since 2004, Jesus, it's been that long since this movie came out. But I've seen this movie a bunch of times now. And only because I know how it ends, I can relate to what you're saying. But the first time I saw it, I didn't think about that too much. It's just, it's a movie. And -hmm. these are people in 2004 acting the roles of people in... 1897. So, you know, I kind of dismissed it on that level when I first saw it. So again, we hear from Edward Walker, as we will a lot in this movie, and he is basically saying grace over the meal. But again, not really a prayer. He basically and he uses this line more than once in the movie. He says, we are grateful for the time we have been given, which I guess in the context of a funeral and in the context of a wedding Can basically mean the same basic thing that, you know, we're grateful for the experience of life. Yeah. And, you know, whatever it brings our way. But I was impressed that there was no bless us, O Lord, through these thine gifts or anything like that. Yeah, right. There was nothing paying homage to any kind of deity. And then they all eat, drink, probably not making merry. It's a funeral. But you start seeing the cohesiveness of this community and the coming together nature of the community and the, and the building up of each other kind of nature with this scene. And people are starting to relax a little bit, you know, food has that effect Yeah, and sharing a meal in a big group has that effect. So the somberness has kind of dissipated a little bit and they're all just enjoying this meal together. And then suddenly there's a noise coming from the woods and everyone hears it. One young man who appears to have an intellectual disability laughs. He thinks it's a hoot and we'll learn later that this is Noah Percy and he is going to be an important player in these events as they unfold. And speaking of events unfolding, we start seeing the period lifestyle unfolding here. We see young girls cleaning dishes outdoors. There are people herding sheep. And I'm thinking to myself, God, these people eat a lot of lamb. 
because I don't see a whole lot of other livestock. You have no. lots and lots of sheep, never a single cow or a pig. There are apparently chickens, but M. Night, for whatever reason, decided not to go too far into the agricultural practices of this community. There's a greenhouse and there are other farming facilities right. within this place. So we know that they produce a lot of veggies and that they're prepared to produce food all year long. Then we see two teenage girls sweeping their porch and they're doing it in a real whimsical, carefree kind of way. Mm -hmm. But then one of them spots something that gives her a start. It's a sprig of red berries growing out of the ground. The girls pull it up and promptly bury it, which we learn later is standard practice around here. Whenever you see the bad color, yeah. which is red, which has been an M. Night Shyamalan instrument for a long time. I think about the sixth sense and right. the mother at the funeral, who mm. everyone is dressed in black, but the mother who basically killed her daughter by poisoning her to death is in bright crimson red. Yeah. So M. Night has a thing about red, and it plays heavily in this movie, too. At the edge of the property is a watchtower where the men of the community seem to take turns staring into the woods. What they're watching for remains to be seen at the moment. We're not told right now, but they seem to think that there's some threat out there in the woods. And they all wear these thick yellow cloaks. And we find out later that, you know, red is the bad color, but yellow is the safe color. So they got all these yeah. rules that they've established and, you know, where they came from, how they came up with it, who knows, at least at this point. There's a bell in the tower, which can be rung as a warning, and there are yellow pennants and burning torches that stretch across the edge of the forest. And there's an odd moaning sound that seems to be coming out of the woods. So next scene, it's early morning. And in the reflection of a stream, we see a murky red figure, there we go with the red again, that goes lumbering by. Then we jump to a bunch of school children gathered around something. And apparently Edward Walker is also the teacher in the village. He asks the children in a very Victorian English sort of way what has caught their attention. And it looks to be a skinned dead dog or maybe a fox. Something did this and it's a warning is the message that's being sent here. Walker asks the children who came upon this, but no one seems to want to admit finding it or knows where it came from. Now into the classroom to discuss what happened to the animal. He asks the children, what do you think happened here? And one of the girls responds, those we don't speak of killed it. And Walker enthusiastically agrees. There has been some indoctrination going on here. Just a little. <laughs> some. He's indoctrinating the shit out of these kids. Okay. Right. And she says it, and he points at her and says, there it is. Why would such a notion come into your mind? And here comes the fruit of all this indoctrination. One of the boys says that they are meat eaters. One of the girls says that they have large claws. And Edward breaks in, and, you know, it's like, we've instilled the fear of these things in these kids. And now we kind of have to soothe them and tell them, those we don't speak of have not breached our borders in many years. We do not go into their woods. They do not come into our valley. It is a truce. We do not threaten them. Why would they do this? But the answer is just left hanging. And now we get to have a look, well, the first look that we get in this movie at a meeting. Yes. These people have a lot of meetings, okay? This is the village's council of elders, and there's a core group that makes all the decisions for the village. Vivian Percy is the one speaking when the scene opens. She's Noah's mother. 
With her is her husband, Robert August Nicholson, a guy named Victor, and we're never told his last name, but he's kind of the medicine man in the village. Yeah. And then there's Edward and Tabitha Walker, Alice Hunt, and Mrs. Clack. We're never told this one's first name. And that's another M. Night instrument right there. There are also three other men and one other woman. Vivian is advocating for some kind of ritual or festival called the Flight of the Birds. She's kind of whimsically describing how she feels about this. Like, we didn't have it last year, and I, for one, missed it desperately. And I know your wife missed the children dressed in feathers and such. And I'm thinking to myself, this sounds very pagany. Yeah. But again, these people don't seem to have much of a religion outside their belief in those we don't speak of. Hmm. As riveting as this discussion is, it's about to get even more interesting. At that point, someone breaks into the meeting, and it's Lucius Hunt. He's the only son of Alice Hunt, and we find out over the course of time that she is a widow, so there is no Mr. Hunt in this village. Lucius is the only Mr. Hunt in the village at this point. Alice jumps a bit when she sees him, but also smiles. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that uh, M. Knight describes Lucius. He says he wears denim, work pants, a gray shirt, and a brown jacket. His hair is a bit curly, but short, and there's a scar on his lip. He's clearly nervous and sways from one foot to the other. He holds a note, which he then reads aloud. The gist of this is that he wants to cross the woods and go into the towns to get medicine and supplies. So this is what he reads to the group. He says, my mother is unaware of the reason for my visit today. She did not give her consent or consult me in any form. The passing of little Daniel Nicholson from illness and other events have weighed on my thoughts. I ask permission to cross into the forbidden woods and travel to the nearest town. I will gather medicines and I will return. With regards to those we don't speak of, I am certain they will let me pass. Creatures can sense emotion and fear. They will see that I am pure of intention and not afraid. And then my favorite part of this, he literally says, the end. <laughs> Later on, Alice and Lucius are back home, and she asks him, what goes on in that head of yours? <laughs> Obviously, she doesn't want him to do any such thing. And, you know, these people have been taught to fear all of this stuff. And this kid, and he is still basically a kid. He's in his 20s. Yeah. But he's still basically a kid. No real fear. No real fear in him. And that's something that's also going to be revisited later because I'm not the only one who who notices this. The only thing that he offers in response is to change the subject immediately and say that Vinton Coyne is in the tower and that he has promised to sit with him during his watch. They're actually two watchtowers, and they exist, we know now, to keep tabs on those we don't speak of. Lucius asks Fenton if he ever thinks of the towns. This is the only descriptor that we get of anything in the outside world. This is the only way that they ever refer to anything outside the village, is there's the village, and then there's the towns. And that's it. That is their entire world. Fitton responds, the towns? What for? They're wicked places where wicked people live. That's all. Bookmark that because it's going to be it's going to be an important thing to remember later on. Mm. Again, there's more of that indoctrination. Anything outside their cloister is evil and dangerous. Where have I heard that before? Mm. You know, be in the yeah. world, not of it. Ugh. That sort of thing. Yeah. Decrying things like secular books and movies and all of that. Not having 
friends who aren't Christians, certainly yeah. not dating someone who isn't a Christian. The world is dark and full of terrors, yes. basically, is the message here. It's the message in this movie, and it's the message in most Christian churches, too. Fenton then thanks Lucius for keeping him company and says that he hopes that no one saw him. I'm not sure why. I, I mean, his mother knew where he was right. going. I don't think that it was any secret that he was there. I think maybe his proximity to the woods after all of that might ruffle some feathers. So, right. you know, and he's trying to keep it kind of hush-hush that he's been that close to the woods because I think that there might be people in the village who would accuse him of stepping a toe out of line at that point. So again, when things move quickly in this movie, it's day, it's night, it's day, it's night. So now we're at the next day already and there's another dead animal. Now, I went to the script to get a little bit more description of some of this stuff. And according to M. Night, these are foxes. So, okay, yeah. we're going to call them foxes going forward. Alice Hunt is now addressing all the women in the town about the mutilations. And she offers two possible scenarios and really tries to play one over the other. Either it's a mad animal or a coyote that only skins its prey. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I haven't. No. Or it's those we don't speak of. And which do you think they're leaning toward? Yeah. So Alice has to smooth things over a little bit more and goes into this lengthy exposition about why it's likely a coyote and that they need to be watchful. You know, for the next fortnight, we need to be watchful for this coyote. And she says, we do not believe our boundary has been breached. Those we don't speak of are much larger creatures than coyotes, and we would know if they had been here. They are kind of big. They are kind of big, but... yeah. A few things that are going to happen later, yeah. they kind of put the kibosh on anything related to a coyote. Mm -hmm. So now we get to meet Kitty Walker. And this girl is the definition of the flibber to gibbet. I, I don't even know if that's a real word. It is a real word but, to describe somebody who's kind of flighty. Yes, yes. So I figure if this is a word in a dictionary, it would have a picture of her right next to it. Yeah, she's cute. Yeah, she's very cute, but oh my God, you want to yeah. talk about uh, having your head in the clouds? Just a little. Oh my goodness. So she's talking with her father and has announced that she is in love and wants permission to marry. Now, she's the older of two sisters. You've got Kitty and you've got Ivy, who are both daughters of Edward and Tabitha Walker. So she's asking her father's permission to marry someone in the village. Not that the object of her affection has even asked her or anything. She proclaims that she's in love with Lucius Hunt. She loves him because he's different from the other men in the village or from the other boys. She calls him a boy. And the way that she describes it, very Victorian and very flibberty gibbety. Yeah. Okay. She says he doesn't joke or bounce about. She likes his intensity. Yes. And Lucius is a very intense character. I got to wonder if Kitty has ever said... One word to Lucius in her entire life, like ever. Well, they've lived together right. for all of these for all these years. I would have to imagine they've had interactions. Yeah. But you know I mean, but as an adult. Yeah. As an adult and teen, you know, just it's just so strange. Yeah. He is kind of reclusive. He spends a lot of time in his workshop. He is not a big talker. So he's not the type that you're going to just strike up a lengthy conversation with. No. So if they've had interactions, I would assume that they've been kind of muted. Right. And this has been building up in her own head for a long time. <laughs> it's odd 
because you wouldn't think that someone like Kitty would want someone who was that intense mm. because it's kind of a clash of personalities there. Um, yeah. But, you know, sometimes opposites do attract. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're about to find out that they don't always attract at the same time. Right. So Edward tells her that there is a, quote, proper manner in which these things are supposed to happen. Like, I don't know, the boy being there asking for her hand or something similar, or at least just being present. Yeah. When a proclamation like this is made. Well, not only is he not there. He also hasn't asked her to marry him, not even remotely. So Edward, you know, he's taken aback, a little bit appalled, I guess, but he knows his daughter well. So he reservedly gives her his blessing, but then tells her not to tell anyone else of her burstings until she's spoken with Lucius. <laughs> okay, let's seal the deal. Kitty goes to see Lucius and just comes out with it. And oh my God. God, does she start to gush. Yes. I love you, Lucius. I love you like the day is long. I love you more than the sun and moon together. And if you feel the same way, then we should not hide it any longer. Well, Lucius wasn't hiding anything. He stares at her like he can't figure her out. And of course, we cut immediately to an incredibly distraught Kitty. Yeah. This is why you don't go all in with the emotions. Her sister Ivy comforts her while the parental units look on from a safe distance. Yeah. She does a good job. She does yeah. a very good job of it. Oh, and sure. I, I get the impression that they've been in this kind of place together before. Yeah. Now we find out what the older boys in the village do for fun. And the most fun thing to do in the village, apparently, is to tempt and taunt those we don't speak of. That's not a good idea. They were out standing on this tree stump, which they very creatively call the stump, basically waiting to be pounced. They stand there with their backs to the woods in what could be referred to as a messianic pose with their arms outstretched. And the idea here is to see how long you can stay there without panicking and yes. running. Okay, that's the entire game that they play here. Meanwhile, Lucius has brought August some firewood and a muted conversation takes place. And I found this part of what August had to say very interesting. You may run from sorrow as we have. Bookmark that too. Sorrow will find you. It can smell you. Amazing that he understands this, especially as things unfold and you learn a little bit more about him and some of the elders. It's interesting to me that he has this perspective yeah. in the first place. But that's just another little hint as to what's really going on here. So far, we know that these people decided to live together in this place. They came from someplace else and made the conscious decision to settle here. Now we're learning that they've run or are running from something, but we yeah. don't know what. August then turns his attention to a locked box under his staircase and as he's looking at it, it's almost like he gets hypnotized by it and he just nods off. He's told Lucius that he hasn't slept in several nights. I think it's pouring over the death of his son and yeah. he's not sleeping well. But he looks at this box for five seconds and all of a sudden he's off in dreamland. Insomnia managed, I guess. But back to the idiots in the woods. They've <laughs> given themselves a good spook and they have now started to bolt home. Literally nothing has happened. Right. I mean, literally nothing. Not even the sounds or anything like that that we hear about. And along those lines, some people do hear strange noises. And in the script, M. Night suggests that these sounds are things like a weed whacker 
or something modern. Right. Okay? When I saw this in the theater, I thought that I heard a car off in the distance. Right. And of course, at this point in the movie, I'm thinking it's an anachronism. But there are explanations for everything that happens here. So just sit tight. If you haven't seen the movie, it's all going to be clear in a little while. This just jumps around so much because right. it's daytime again. And some of the boys are outside roughhousing and Noah is one of the instigators. And, you know, it seems like he does this a lot. He kind of rouses the rabble. He kind yeah. of antagonizes things. And things can get a little bit out of hand when he's around. So Ivy admonishes them. Well, she admonishes Noah. And there's a specific dynamic between these two. Mm -hmm. In her mind, it's completely platonic. She's more motherly, more nurturing right. in her intentions toward him. But because he has a mental disability, he doesn't pick up on the nuances. So right. all he knows is that this is a very, very, very beautiful girl who's paying him attention right and he is thinking about it in ways that i don't want to say that another boy his age wouldn't because with all due respect she's a gorgeous girl giving him attention right so it's easy to misconstrue but i think that someone who can think a little bit more rationally would understand her behavior toward them a little bit better than this guy does right and this is about where it becomes obvious that ivy is actually blind Noah apparently doesn't know when to call it quits with the roughhousing and aggressiveness, so he and Ivy strike a deal. Noah has to promise never to strike another person again, and he says no hitting. It seems to me like they have had this conversation before. Yeah. She then challenges Noah to a foot race to a place they call Resting Rock. And we're going to learn a lot more about Ivy and how well she navigates things, especially being that she's blind. She always knows where she is. Yes. She always knows what's going on. She usually knows at least when certain people are around. So they race to this place that they call Resting Rock. And Lucius is there. And Ivy just sort of knows he's there and has a very existential way of explaining how. And this is what she has to say about this. She says, some people, just a handful, mind you, give off the tiniest color. It's faint, like a haze. It's the only thing I ever see in the darkness. Papa has it, too. So I guess she sees her father this way. People aren't like stone blind. They're not like in a dark room. They usually can see something. Mm -hmm. And certain people to her have a certain color. Yeah. And that's how she knows them. Yeah. I mean, most blind people can distinguish a little bit between light and dark. But right. her ability here toward certain people is just a little bit. It's like a step above that. Right. Lucius then tells her that she runs like a boy. And she tells Lucius that he made her sister cry. And Noah, at this point, hears some kind of a sound and bolts after it like a dog. This, this was the way of getting him out of the way so these two could have a conversation. Now, Ivy and Lucius are alone, and she gets very candid. She says, I know why you deny my sister. When I was younger, you used to hold my arm when I walked. Then suddenly you stopped. One day, I even tripped in your presence and almost fell. I was faking, of course, but still, you did not hold me. And then she pauses for a second because she wants him to think about that. And then she says, sometimes we don't do things we want to do so that others won't know we want to do them. At that point, Noah comes back and hands Ivy something as a gag. And it's a sprig of red berries. And then he informs Ivy that she's holding the bad color. And 
these people believe that the bad color attracts those we don't speak of. And just like the girls in the beginning, Ivy says that they need to bury it. Lucius points out that those things don't grow inside the village. The implication is that Noah found them someplace else, and Lucius immediately puts two and two together. But he doesn't come right out and say at this point what he knows, but he knows what's going on with the berries. So in the next scene, Lucius is again addressing the elders, and this is where he gives his thoughts on what the whole thing with the berries actually was. He says, it is my belief that Noah Percy has entered the woods and has done so on many occasions. It is also my belief that because of his innocence, those creatures who reside in the woods did not harm him. This strengthens my feeling that they will let me pass if they sense that I am not a threat. He's trying so hard to convince them to let him do this. But now mom is trying to put a little fear in her boy. We find out something heinous about her life and are given a small snippet of the reason why the village exists. To deter him from this notion of going to, quote, the towns, she tells him, your father left for the market on a Tuesday at a quarter past nine in the morning. He was found robbed and naked in a filthy river two days later. So now we know why there's no Mr. Hunt. This also will not be the only one of these kinds of stories that we hear over the course of the movie. Lucius then asks, why do you tell me this blackness? And Alice says that it's because she fears for his life. Lucius counters with, I am not the one with secrets. And Alice, of course, asks him to clarify. Lucius directs her attention to, yep, another black box. Lucius says there are secrets in every corner of this village. Do you not feel it? Do you not see it? And Alice explains why she has the box. She says, that is for my own well-being, so the evil things from my past are kept close and not forgotten. Forgetting would be to let them be born again in another form. Right, because holding on to things like that always hold their effects on us at bay, right? That's what this does. Yeah, to me it just seems like it keeps their pain alive. Oh, yeah. So Lucius then suggests opening the box, but of course Alice is going to balk on that one. Mm. She says that they should speak to Edward about the whole going into the woods business. Let's get the subject off the box, even if we have to keep talking about this. Let's not talk about the box anymore. So Lucius says he hides too. He hides his feelings for you. Now keep in mind that Edward is in fact married. His wife is in fact alive. (laughs) They have a family, and yet Lucius is seeing this, this dynamic between the two of them. And it's left hanging for a minute, but then they come back to it. Alice asks him, what makes you think he has feelings for me? And Lucius says, he never touches you. This on the heels of that whole business about how Ivy was tripping and he refused to even touch her. Right. So now Lucius is kind of sort of taking matters into his own hands. He's not venturing out into the towns, but he is in the woods. He's legit in the woods. And all I'm thinking as I'm watching through this last week is into the woods. He had to go into the woods to show his metal into the woods. And just like that, the bad colors before him. I don't know if I should sing it. I think that I think that might, might be, be a copyright issue. Yeah, that might be a copyright but issue. But I think people the, the right people are going to get that. Yeah. Um and they don't want to hear me sing either. The point here is that he's figured out where the berries came from. Yeah. And let's just add a little defiance here and pick up a sprig and just walk around with it. And that's what he's doing. 
he then makes his way back into the village and, of course, makes a beeline for Ivy. And Ivy, of course, recognizes him by his color and tells him that she's playing a game with Noah. They're basically playing hide-and-seek. Lucius then walks Ivy to her front porch, and Ivy tells him that she needs to go help her sister watch the children, but then doubles back. So I guess she's just sort of kind of trying to keep Noah occupied, and it's a hoot for him that she can't find him. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that he cares how long it takes for her to happen upon him. He's just going to hide until she either finds him or he decides that he's done playing the game. This is her way of keeping him occupied, like you would with a toddler. Yeah. She then tells Lucius that she's heard her parents talking about him and that she thinks that his plan is noble, but not right. So he quickly turns the conversation to, are you not angry that you have no sight? And I think the implication here is that if we had medicines, we probably could have saved your sight. And I like the answer that she gives. This is just priceless. And it is so Ivy. It is so this character. She says... I see the world, Lucius Hunt, just not as you see it. Mm -hmm. And Lucius then appeals to her soft spot for Noah and then starts speculating that there could be medicines in the towns that would help cure Noah and make him able to learn. You know, there's very, very lofty goals and ideals here. The notions that he has of what this quest will accomplish are really, really up in the clouds. But being the type of person that he is, I can totally understand... As someone who has a seething savior complex, I know precisely <laughs> what's going on in his head. Yeah. Okay? Now it's Ivy who politely asks to change the subject again. The whole concept of, you know, what if we could give you back your sight? Ivy isn't selfish like that. She would never ask anyone to put themselves in jeopardy just so that she could see. It's not in her nature. But Lucius is trying to convince her and really spinning the what if aspect of this. And on a number of fronts. So Ivy then changes the subject again. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking about how Kitty has found love again. This time with Kristop Crane. This guy is weird. He's very weird. He has this odd paranoia about wrinkles in his shirts. It's a weird sort of vanity that no one in the village seems to share with him. I look at it more as a fetish than a vanity. Yeah. It's, it's really just, odd. It's just so odd. It's like, dude, you can iron your shirt. Yeah, so that's where the vanity part of it comes in. I guess yeah. he just doesn't want to walk around with a wrinkled shirt. I guess. But it goes a little bit beyond that a for me. Bit. This 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 is the 1897 version of OCD. Yeah. He's, he's very OCD when it comes, and at least with this one specific thing. Right. And with the news of Kitty's impending nuptials on the table... Ivy pretty much throws herself at Lucius. She is shamelessly throwing herself at him. Yeah. She tells him that now that her older sister is spoken for, she can now receive interest from anyone who might have interest. Yep. Just just put it it's right out there. It's very cute. It's incredibly cute. <laughs> and the way that it makes Lucius just a tad bit uncomfortable is even cuter. Yeah. So they go back inside, and Noah is hiding in the closet. But, of course, Ivy doesn't notice him. He apparently doesn't have a color. So he thinks that this is a hoot because he's standing right there, and she doesn't see him. She grabs a blanket from the closet and then closes the door. Now it's later that night, and back in the tower, we see that there's a lantern that appears to be behaving a little bit strangely. Fenton is on watch again, and he thinks that it's Lucius rattling the tower and even calls out to him. Well, no. 
it's one of them. Mm. And we see it walk by. And Vinton tolls the bell. The villagers scatter. Everyone is taking cover like a tornado is coming through. And Noah being Noah, he just thinks that this whole thing is a hoot. He's not taking it seriously. He's standing there with the door flung wide open. And they're admonishing him to come in. And Kitty is, she's terrified. And she keeps admonishing him to come in. And he just keeps acting like it's a big party. He's thrilled at what's going on here. Windows and doors are being barred and locked. Lucius is doing everything he can to secure houses and not just Ivy's. No. But he is helping to secure the village at this point. Right. And then we see one of them. And it's kind of a half porcupine, half skexy kind of thing. Anyone who knows the Dark Crystal knows what I'm talking about. These things could have existed in that world. Yeah, they're really weird. So... Ivy wants to wait for Lucius because she just sort of knows she has this vibe that he is going to come by to make sure that she's okay. I'm thinking to myself, you're going after the girl. What about your mother? You know, that that was my thought. But Lucius is very singular of mind with certain things. Yeah. And Kitty is begging her to come in and not let the creatures in because the door is wide open. And there's at least one of them in the village right now, very, very close. So Kitty is terrified. She's like panicked and she is over and over again. She's making her appeal. But Ivy is very determined. She knows that Lucius is coming for her and she's determined to wait. And he does. But it is a very close call. This is a tense moment. Those we don't speak of are in the village. And one of them has been clawing at the house. You can hear it. It turns the corner and Ivy is standing there with her hand outstretched and the creature is about to reach out and grab her when Lucius finally shows up and they dash inside, bar the door and hide in this Victorian era version of a safe room underneath the floorboards. It's a really beautiful scene, though. It's so nicely shot and the music just swells and it's more dramatic than almost any other time in the film. Which is really interesting. Well, M. Night likes to do things in waves. Yeah. And honestly, this is a gothic romance. It kind of is, yeah. You've got shadows. You've got mist. It's not a castle. It's a village. But it's the same thing. Oh, yeah. And you've got monsters. Yeah. So, yeah. It definitely does have those elements. Yeah. And the just the creepiness factor of it. Yeah. and, and uh, And the suspense factor of it. To me, it it parallels when we first see the aliens and signs. Yeah. You know, it Ugh. has that same kind of creepy, foreboding kind of feel. But this, I think, is even more intense because the proximity of this creature to them, when he finally shows up, you want to talk about the nick of time. He shows up when this thing is literally about to reach out and grab them and boom, right into the house. So, yeah, M. Night knows how to raise the tension. I like that about his stuff. But that right there is all we get to see. Apparently, it was basically a non-event. It was more of a warning than anything else. Because now it's morning, and everyone appears to still be there. But the creatures have left a message, or as Edward puts it, a warning. And we hear him addressing the people, and we see a brief montage of slashes on the doors of you know a lot of the buildings in the village. We then jump to the elders addressing the town, And at this point, I'm thinking, damn, these people had a lot of meetings. And I don't see them tending to livestock or doing chores anywhere near as much as I see them having meetings. I bet they have meetings to plan their meetings. (laughs) I know. And you know what? 
I spent enough time in the corporate world to tell you that that is a thing that happens sometimes. Yes. Anyway, it's pretty elders all in a row and bewildered villagers who are trying to suss out what happened. He'll, what did we do? We do nothing wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's that's the, the general sentiment. It's like, why the hell is this happening? And August points out that the creatures have never attacked without a reason and just asks the group outright if anyone has any idea why this happened. Well, here comes the reason. Lucius confesses by proxy. Vivian Percy reads his very, very, very overwrought mea culpa statement. Yeah, I think Lucius is really hard on himself. He has a strong leadership impulse, but when he missteps, he just beats himself up over it. Yeah, he's taking all on his own shoulders because he went out into those woods. And now all eyes are on him. And he has basically put himself in the corner. All right. He's in self-deprecation and punishment mode at this point. And he's all the way in the back of the room waiting for retribution to fall. But what happens next actually surprised me. Well, it did the first time that I saw this movie. It really surprised me. Edward looks down on Lucius with this very warm, fatherly look of compassion. And he says, do not fret. You are fearless in a way I will never know. So... Edward's not angry, and neither is anyone else in the village. It doesn't seem like they're pissed at him at all. No. And I think that he's doing a lot more blaming himself than anyone else is actually blaming him. Yeah. And on the heels of all of this chaos, now it's time for a wedding. Yeah. So Kitty's going to do some scratching tonight, let Uh. me tell you. But uh, she better not rip off Kristoff's shirt. That's going to ruin the mood right there. But, you know, I could see her doing it. I can totally see, you know, on how many how many years of this adolescent pent up tension. Yeah. But but don't wrinkle his shirt. Just stay away from his shirt. Let him take the shirt off himself, okay? But at this point in the script, M. Knight tells us that there are at least 95 people who live in the village and maybe more, and they've all shown up for the wedding. And the reception after is kind of epic. And I'll tell you, even by modern standards, this looked like a pretty good party. It looked like yeah. a lot of fun. Oh, it really does. It just looked like a great party. I mean, it's a beautiful setting. You can't ask for better. Well, yeah. <laughs> you get the dark and foreboding aspect right. of this, of, of the life that they have here. But then you also get the idyllic. Yeah. Which, you know, it keeps going back and forth. It you does. know, it's beautiful, but it's terrible. There's that real duality of things. That's very evident in most of M. Night's work. And now, in the middle of all of this, there are people who have taken the time to make an offering to those we don't speak of. And this is also epically pagan. (laughs) Two young men in those yellow robes, the safe color, mind you, literally carry their offering on a litter and toss it on a rock. Alter anyone? It's a whole fully clean side of lamb And I'm just thinking, God, that is a lot of food wasted. Yeah, and the litter even had white and yellow daisies on it. It's very, very pagan. Yeah, very ceremonial and definitely a real pagan sort of feel to it. But immediately we go back to the party and Ivy and Mrs. Clack are talking and we get another story about the evils of the outside world. Mrs. Clack says that Kitty reminds her of her sister And Ivy asks the sister's name. Mrs. Clack does not respond. What she does instead is explain why the sister isn't part of the community. She says, my sister did not live past her 23rd birthday. A group of men took her life in an alley by our home. And with that, 
it's back to the happy nuptials. It's just back and forth, back and forth, yeah. dark and light, dark and light. Yeah. And poor Kristoff is all paranoid about people hugging him and squeezing his shirt. It's such a thing with him. It's, it's so really, it's so weird. But <laughs> so, but that's him. And now she's married to him. So the, it's it's her burden to bear at this point. Yeah. Um. And then we get to see just a little bit of sexual tension between Alice and Edward. She congratulates him on his daughter's wedding and extends her hand, but he doesn't take it. But then a moment later, she sees him holding Mrs. Percy's hand. Yeah. So what Lucius said was right. He never touches her. Then we see a little wedding dance action. People are happy. This is a joyous occasion. And then a scream. Two of the children are screaming for Mr. Walker. My, the mood changed quickly. Yeah. And they're saying they're in the village. They left more warnings. And then everybody travels in a big pack back to the village proper. And when they get there, they find lots of dead skinned animals, more foxes, probably some chickens. There's there's a, there's lot, a lot of carnage when they get back. And Alice and Edward then start discussing the marks on the door. And she concedes that coyotes can't reach that eye. No. You know, that was not what happened there. Yeah. Um, she can't explain this away. No, no. No. There's there's really no way to explain it away at this point. Now, it's quiet after all this. It's very quiet. And Lucius is outside. Ivy is trying to sleep. But, of course, she feels him and then goes out after him. Ivy tells him that the elders are going to have an inquiry the next day and that each member of the village is going to be questioned in the meeting hall. It sounds very Joe McCarthy at this point, but I don't think that that was the real intent. But the whole notion of everyone in the village being questioned has a foreboding aspect to it, too. Yeah. They think that they're going to get to the bottom of how the border was breached. And because I, I don't think that anyone in the village even has the notion to blame Lucius for this. Honestly, I fully expected this to turn into a Salem witch trial situation at this point and have the entire village at each other's throats. But M. Knight had a different idea. Ivy asks Lucius, why are you on this porch? And Lucius says that it isn't safe. Ivy then points out that he could be sitting on any porch in the village, and yet here he is at hers. She asks Lucius if he thinks she's too much of a tomboy. She says she likes doing tomboy things and describes the game the boys play at the stump. Apparently, Lucius holds the record, and that record isn't about to be broken anytime soon. Ivy asks Lucius how he is so brave when everyone else is shaking in their boots. And I like his answer. He says, I do not worry about what will happen, only what needs to be done. And that right there is a leadership quality. Yeah. It's a major, major leadership quality. And he wants to know how she knew he was even there. And she says that she saw him out the window. That whole enigmatic, I can see your color thing. They never get around to telling us what his color is. And Ivy puts the subject to bed and tells us by way of conversation with Lucius that she's not going to tell us. It's just not something that's going to come up. And now we get what is my absolute favorite conversation in this whole thing. Ivy asks Lucius, when we're married, will you dance with me? I find dancing very agreeable. So she's kind of doing the same thing that Kitty did, kind of boxing him into a corner. Yeah. But this apparently is a corner that he wants to be boxed into. Right. So, yeah, she's a little presumptuous. But she has reason to think that this little Hail Mary is safe. I mean, it's obvious that there are feels here. But the way this decision is made really encapsulates who Lucius is. He's surprised by the question, but only to the extent that this is supposed to be his job. 
And this exchange is what seals the deal. I've never seen a couple argue their way into a betrothal, but here we are. <laughs> Ivy asks, why can you not say what is in your head? And Lucius returns volley with, why can you not stop saying what is in yours? Why must you lead when I want to lead? If I want to dance, I will ask you to dance. If I want to speak, I will open my mouth and speak. Everyone is forever plaguing me to speak further. Why? And I think anyone who has ever been in love can relate to this part of it. And I remember distinctly saying things like this while you and I drove <laughs> around in that blizzard at the end of 89. Yeah. I can remember this part, what he says here, I remember distinctly being part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. He says, what good is it to tell you that you were in my every thought from the time I wake? What good can come from me saying I sometimes cannot think clearly or do my work properly? He continues by telling her that the only thing he actually fears is that some harm might come to Ivy. And then just like that, and yes, I will dance with you on our wedding night. And boom, they're engaged. So Lucius and Ivy are getting married. It's out there. And Kitty is holding it together, but she still feels a tinge of jealousy. She handles it well. I'll give her that. She's married, and honestly, it seems like that's what she wanted. She wasn't picky about the who. She just wanted the what. And you got to wonder what life looked like between Kitty and Shirt a few years down the line. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. And it's no secret that Noah has specific thoughts concerning Ivy, too. I mean, she's beautiful. She showed him all kinds of attention. But instead of Kitty going ballistic, it's Noah whose jealousy is about to deliver one of those crazy twists that M. Night was great at delivering. Mm -hmm. um, but before we see how Noah deals with his jealousy, we see Alice basically interrogating one of the women in the village about the livestock. All was well right before the wedding, business as usual. This is another one with just a first name. Her name is Beatrice. And intent on changing the subject, she asks Alice if it's true what she's hearing about Ivy and Lucius. Who wants to talk about this, this mutilated animal shit? And then we get another of my favorite lines in this movie. It is amazing to witness which two people love chooses to unite. It follows no rules. And it's true. The way that my brain thinks about love, I'd like to take the word two out of there, but that's okay. The sentiment is there, and I think that it's a good one. Um, now, Alice, of course, is thinking of the enigmatic sadness of the truth behind that statement. After all, there's feels there between her and Edward, and it's made clear that those feels are fated to go unresolved basically forever. I'm telling you, people, take out the two. Take out the two. But that's not something that's going to happen in 1897. Yeah. And it's not the type of plot twist that he's going to uh, perpetrate on us. So now we cut to Lucius working in his workshop, and a very distraught Noah knocks on his door. It's clear that Noah's been crying. His eyes are red and puffy, and he's a mess emotionally and physically. Lucius figures things out quickly and attempts to explain to Noah that Ivy does, in fact, love him, but that there are different kinds of love. But when he turns to face Noah, instantly we know something is wrong. Lucius looks stunned. He looks at Noah, Noah looks at him, and then the camera lets us in on what's happened. Noah has stabbed Lucius right in the gut. Lucius falls right where he stands, and... Noah is a bit stunned himself. He turns to leave, but then I guess he decides that he needs to finish the job. He doubles back and stabs Lucius a few more times while he's defenseless. Next scene, Noah is home and kind of needs to wash his hands. He's rocking in a chair on the Percy's porch, staring out at the village. His back is turned to his parents, and his mother says that it's time for them to go to a meeting. I'm telling you, it's all these people do is have meetings. 
He turns around, and this is the definition of being caught red-handed. All he can say is the bad color, the bad color, referring to his hands. I think at this point is where it's hitting him what he's done, and his parents realize it too. They don't know who, but they know what, and this has got to be a terrifying moment for them. Of course, this meeting is another sort of tribunal where everyone is being questioned, and an unknown villager bursts in and says that there's been an accident. Well, that's one way of putting it. Ivy immediately knows. She goes looking for Lucius. She knows his color, after all. And yep, her spider sense leads her right to him. She stands there in the workshop demanding, Lucius Hunt, you answer me this moment. And she takes a few more steps and literally runs into him. She's too stunned to even call for help. She cradles him in her arms, and several of the villagers happen upon the scene. Ivy tells her father that she cannot see his color, which is significant. And what everybody's thinking at this point is that he's just done. She has to be pried off of him so they can do what they can to help him. Ivy, at this point, really does think that Lucius is dead or as good as dead, and it's a popular opinion. Noah is being held in this little cloister's version of the brig. They call it the quiet room. Mrs. Clack tells the villagers that Lucius has suffered greatly and he could pass at any moment. She then tells them to give Lucius all your prayers and good thoughts. He will hear them. It's the only mention of prayer in this entire thing. And even here, they're not invoking any deity. No. She's telling them to send good thoughts to Lucius because he, Lucius, will hear them. Now, Ivy is going to pay Noah a visit, and uh, it's not its not a happy scene. Mm-mm. She goes to the quiet room, and the look on her face says it all. There is no compassion here, no pity, no love. And then she kind of walks up to him and gets a feel for precisely where he is, even touches his face to know where her target is, and starts wailing on him. Yeah. She slaps him silly until August drags her away. Noah lets out these wails of despair as Mr. Percy again locks him in. Clearly, this was not how he was going to get the girl. Now, Ivy wants to go into the woods to go to the towns so that she can get medical supplies and save her fiancé. She asks her father to let her go and tells him that the decision is in his hands. I mean, she is she's being assertive and submissive at the same moment here because that's how women in this era were taught to behave and how they were taught to deal with their fathers. Right. So she's being very urgent about it, but she's also, you know, she's also being submissive and saying, I'm going to go with whatever your decision is here, but please, you know, that's basically it. So Victor, again, he's kind of the medicine man in the village. He's been charged with closing Lucius's wounds. The main concern here, oddly enough, isn't the the injuries from the wounds. It's the infection that is growing in Lucius because he's been stabbed repeatedly with a dirty knife. Yeah. Apparently he didn't hit any vital organs. So, you know, very lucky. Lucius is really, really lucky here. Edward asks Victor if there is anything at all that can be done to mend the boy. And Victor pauses, and Edward persists. Victor says that there's a chance that Lucius will make it if they can contain the infection. That means antibiotics. Yeah. Which they don't have here. Edward is now thinking of going to the towns himself, and Tabitha knows it, so she draws him away a safe distance and pins him down to it. And she says, I know the thing that's in your head. You're thinking of going to the towns. Tell me I'm wrong. You have made an oath, Edward. All of us have. 
never to go back. And this has come up before. Back to what? We're not going to find out just yet. But just another one of those little snippets that we get along the way here. And then she continues, it is a painful bargain, but no good can come without sacrifice. These are your words, I'm saying. So she's throwing his own words, these words that compelled all these people to come to this place in the first place. And she's throwing it right back at him, you know, basically saying, okay, if we can deal with the death of a six-year-old, that was probably preventable. If we can deal with our own daughter going blind, then we should be able to deal with this. Mm. She does not want him to go. And at this point, I'm thinking, well, looks like Edward's attempts at indoctrination are backfiring on him a little bit here. Edward tries to inject a caveat by pointing out that what has happened to Lucius is a crime. That makes it different from any kind of medical anything, you know? Yeah. Because the other things that she is mentioning or at least alluding to, these were natural cause kind of things. But yeah. this is different. In Edward's mind, this is different. But Tabitha throws it right back at him. And really punches the you on this one. She says, you made an oath. Forget the rest of the village. She's pinning this directly on him. And there's a reason why. All the elders took this oath, but in her mind, it all falls on him. And she's right, and we will find out why later. Edward approaches Ivy, who is sitting in a rocking chair. Clearly, there's a lot of preventable illness and death happening here. And I have to wonder if anyone thought about this before they left wherever it was that they came from to live in this charmed communal life with dead six-year-olds, murderous, savage creatures, and mentally disabled passion killers. He says, The moment I heard my daughter's vision had finally failed her and that she would forever be blind, I was sitting in that very chair. I was so ashamed. Ashamed? Why? What did he have to do with it, I wonder? <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> they go for a walk, during which time Edward brings up the subject of Ivy's grandfather. We haven't heard mention of him yet. Grandpa Walker is described as having been, quote, the wealthiest man in the towns. Edward tells her that his father was very savvy when it came to money. If he was given one dollar in less than a fortnight, he would have turned it into five. He tells her, you don't know of money. It's not part of our life here. Money can be a wicked thing. It can turn men's hearts black. Good men's hearts. He then tells her that Grandpa was a good guy, but a terrible judge of other people's character. He had a good sense of humor and taught Edward valuable lessons. First and foremost, what it means to be a leader. But with no further preamble, we get just another grisly tale from the past. Your grandfather, James Walker, died in his sleep. A man put a gun to his head and shot him while he dreamed. And this was his business partner, who then hung himself in James's closet. He then tells Ivy that she is strong, that she's like Grandpa, and how she leads when others would only follow. Makes them a good match, her and Lucius, very, very much. He says, you see light where there is only darkness. I trust you. He says, I trust you among all the others. And he's about to put that trust to the test. They come to a place that Ivy recognizes, even though she can't see it. He asks, do you know where you are? And she says, we're at the old shed that is not to be used. So we have creatures we don't speak of. We have sheds we don't use. What other do nots exist in this place? Yeah. Edward approaches the door to this shed. And he says something that I found to be quite odd at that moment. He says, do your very best not to scream. Something happens here, but we're not told what yet. I'm finding it real interesting at this point that we're really only about halfway through the movie. 
you know, things have moved very, very quickly up to this right. point. Now things are going to slow down a little bit, but a lot is about to happen here. So in the next scene, it appears to once again be early morning. We get a shot of the bell that warned the villagers standing silent. She's been given her father's blessings. She shoves her yellow robe and a pocket watch into a big bag and appears to be making haste. She kneels at Lucius's bedside and tells him that she is leaving to fetch him medicines. All the elders are gathered outside one of the houses, and Edward tells them that he has sent Ivy to the towns for medicines. And that's all we see at that point. Next, we see Ivy heading into the woods with two escorts. One that makes a lot of sense and one that just doesn't. Yeah. She's got Fenton Coyne, who is one of the watchmen. So, you know, you would think that he would have a little bit more metal than the average. So she's accompanied by him and her brother-in-law, Krista. They set yellow. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? No. They set yellow flags and put on their yellow robes. Ivy has a look of determination on her face because she sees the task ahead. She is the first to advance. The others hold back for a moment, but then they follow. They're supposed to be protecting her, but, you know, that's not what's going to happen here. Kristoff is particularly apprehensive, and Ivy tells him that he need not be scared. Wait for it, because they have the magic rocks. Kristoff, being a bit of a coward, but one with at least somewhat of a brain, asks her why they've never heard of these rocks before. Mm. And all she offers in response is that they will be safe. They will light torches and they'll be safe. I don't know what those two things have to do with each other, but that's what she says to bring him down a little bit. If it's always been that simple, you know, magic rocks, no creatures harm us, then why has this concept not been visited on them before? Kristoff can't get past this. He's going back to safety. His shirt is depending on him. So <laughs> Seriously. But Fenton decides to stay, at least for now. So it starts raining really, really, really hard. And Fenton and Ivy put up this makeshift shelter. It's just a big tarp that they yeah. stretch between a couple of trees so that they can get shelter from the storm. But even Fenton, who is clearly more brave than most, can't shake the sense of dread that being in the woods is giving him. He tells her that she will be safe because she can't see. He's breaking the news to her that he's not going to be hanging around. And he tells her the creatures will take pity on her because she's blind. And being the guardian of the rocks, he puts the rocks in her hand. And then there was one. Being the one who leads where others only follow, Ivy dismisses Fenton with her blessing. Tells her it's okay for him to go. And once he goes... She dumps out the rocks. You see, she knows. Yeah. But how does she know? Okay, now it's time for the big reveal. What was it that Edward was afraid would make her scream? Well, we're about to find out. They enter the shed. She says that there's an odd smell. Edward then directs her to something in the shed, something he, quote, cannot explain in words. We see Ivy's outstretched hand as the camera follows what she's about to touch, and then we see it. Tusk-like spines that rattle like bones, coarse matted hair, and the bad color. Her hands peruse it, and then she understands. She touches one of these tusks, okay, one of these big spiny things, and she feels the point on it, and she doesn't scream, but she gasps and steps back, and in almost a scream. She says, those we don't speak of. Edward immediately tries to calm her. He, he does not want attention attracted to this at all. 
So he holds her and tries to calm her and says, it is only farce. Be not frightened. And there are all the suits, the creatures. Now that we get to see them up close, have the faces of wild boars and those tusk-like spines. Yeah, to anyone living in 1897, this would be pretty terrifying. Now comes the justification. He says there did exist rumors of creatures in the woods. So there is, in fact, a local legend about these things. Remember, Edward was a professor of history, and his family was from the towns. So he literally took his cues from local lore when he was devising this whole thing. The creatures, the screams in the woods, the offerings, all of it an elaborate ruse. And the more she learns, the more pissed off Ivy is getting. Just like when you start seeing your religion for what it is. Yeah. When you start seeing that it's only farce. Here is Edward's brilliant explanation of all of this. He says, we didn't want anyone going into the towns. There is no one in this village who has not lost someone irreplaceable, who has not felt lost so deeply that they question the very merit of living at all. And I'm sitting here thinking, dude, join the club. I've lost plenty of people by way of death or that deathless death of abandonment that in many ways is far worse. He's right. Everyone goes through these things, but what level of selfishness does it take to hold people captive over your inability to deal with loss? But the man behind the curtain hasn't been completely revealed yet. Oh, no. He says, forgive us our silly lies. They were not meant to harm. And I'm just thinking about the audacity of him referring to all of this as silly lies. You mean those lies that have a hundred people trapped here, shackled by fear of these creatures ravaging them in the night? Those quote-unquote silly lies, Edward? Amazing. It is amazing to me how people downplay the gravity of their actions even when they see the consequences of them. But for now, this is all Ivy knows. They made up the creatures and this knowledge makes it a little easier to do what she needs to do. And then... Ivy says something that very eloquently encapsulates precisely how I feel about anyone who finds themselves trapped in their religion. She says, I am sad for you, Papa, for you and for all the elders. Edward asks her if she's willing to take on the burden. And well, yep, she is. Edward hands her a pocket watch and a folded sheet of paper. He then lays out the plan. He's written down a supply list they would know how to find in the towns. She will go with two escorts and follow the sound of the stream. She will then come to a hidden road. The escorts will wait there while she continues. She's admonished to tell no one in the towns where they are and return with haste. And then her father says, I cannot come with you. You gave your heart to this boy. He is in need. Ugh. Yeah. You know, what a way to wash your hands of it, Edward. Once she is on her way, Edward first visits Alice and tells her that he sent Ivy to the towns and says to her, it's all that I can give you. There is a lot of tension right there yeah. in this scene. It's like they draw really, really close to each other, but he refuses to touch her. I think she wants to hug him. I think she wants to kiss him. I think she wants something, but this is all she's going to get. Yeah. And he doesn't really step back, but he makes absolutely no move to offer her any kind of consolation or affection. He just says it again. It is all that I can give you. So now it's time to deal with the elders. And there's all kinds of squawking about this. We have agreed to never go back. And again, back to what? 
well, you know, we're about to find out some shit. Edward justifies his decision, arguing that Lucius is the victim of a crime. And Mrs. Clack retorts, we have agreed never to go back. Never. And Edward says, what was the purpose of our leaving? Let us not forget it was out of hope of something good and right. And then Robert Percy admonishes him for keeping the elders in the dark. And Edward responds like any other idiot who makes bad decisions and now desperately needs to justify them. He says, I'm guilty, Robert. I made a decision of the heart. I cannot look into another's eyes and see the same look I see in August without justification. It is too painful. I cannot bear it. So now it's all about him. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm thinking at this point, (laughs) feeling a little guilty about this, are we? Shunning the outside world, not having access to help when it's needed, letting your daughter go blind, letting a six-year-old die when there were means to save him. Oh, it's all starting to bear down on him. And you know what? Good. Mrs. Clack tells him that he's jeopardized everything that they've made. And by all accounts, they've been living like this for a long time. Edward tries to justify it by saying that if things keep unraveling, their way of life will too. He says, do you plan to live forever? It is in them that our future lives. It is in Ivy and Lucius that this, this way of life will continue. Yes, I have risked. I hope I'm always able to risk everything for the just and right cause. If we did not make this decision, we could never again call ourselves innocent. And that in the end is what we have protected here. Innocence. That I am not ready to give up. Oh, but you have, Edward, and you know it. You know it. August is very resigned at this point. He says, let her go. If it ends, it ends. We can move toward hope. It's what's beautiful about this place. We must not run from heartache. But, but, uh, uh, never mind. We've already gotten snippets of how they've done just that. Yeah. And Mrs. Clack asks how he could task a blind girl with this. And he responds by telling her that Ivy is one of the most capable people in the village. And he's right. He says she is led by love. The world moves for love. It kneels before it in awe. Um, and I'm like, really? What world do you live in, pal? Just given what we know already about what some of these people have gone through, how could you have this pie in the sky way of thinking about what love is? Because you know what? I believe in love. I think love is an important part of life. It's an important part of how we interact with each other as humans. It's a vital part of our existence. But I don't think for one second that the world moves for love. Not by a long shot. Then we jump to Ivy, alone in the woods, and very, very scared. She's scared, but she is determined. I will give her that. She is feeling her way through the woods with her cane. She comes up on a barrier and then turns to go back, but the ground around this rotting tree gives way, and she falls into this very, very deep hole. She manages to grab on, so she doesn't fall all the way in. And she escapes, basically because it's not time to roll the credits yet. Yes, <laughs> I mean, that's, but that's it's pretty like, much it. It's like a Chekhov's hole. She needs it later. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So she claws her way out of the hole, and she is, at this point, terrified. But she's also determined to press on. This is where we get back to the whole there-did-exist-rumors thing, and this is obviously setting us up for something. So we hear Edward's little voiceover about the rumors of creatures in the woods. Ivy hears a noise and starts becoming convinced that she is not alone. She just starts running headlong through the brambles. She doesn't know it, but she is surrounded by the bad color. 
sprigs of the same berries that Noah handed her earlier, and probably the exact same spot that Lucius was in. I love the camera work in this scene. I love what he does here to reveal what's about to happen. The camera just sort of pans around her, and you get this sense of disorientation, and then there it is. Those we don't speak of are in the woods. It's a pretty good rumor. She tells herself it isn't real, but I mean, it's standing right there. She can hear it. She knows it's there. And this is the big M. Night plot twist. They're real. They're really, really real. Well, the creature stares her down for a long moment, then lunges at her. She evades it, and like more than once, she evades it several times. But she isn't going to shake it. That thing is coming for her, and it is determined. She has an amazing sense of direction and goes back to the side of the tree. She feels the upended roots and knows where she is. She stands in front of the hole with her arms outstretched like the boys do at the stump, baiting the creature to come at her. The creature lunges, she steps out of the way, and it falls in the hole. Back at the village, Noah's parents enter the quiet room and, oops, no Noah, he's escaped. Oh, and the floorboards are upended. They were hiding one of the suits in there, and he found it. So now we know what Ivy was really up against, and then we get to see it. We jump back to an injured Noah lying in the hole. He dies of his injuries from the fall and probably getting impaled by those razor-sharp tusks. Ivy holds watch until she hears silence. She doesn't know it was him, which frankly surprises me, but he doesn't say anything to her. He just groans, and you hear his death rattle, and he's gone. He never calls out to her or anything. She sort of stands there at the top of this hole, and she sort of weeps for a minute, but then she presses on. Meanwhile, Lucius is really holding on by a thread, and one of them, I forget which one, says his will to live is very strong. Ivy then finds the road that her father told her about, and we hear his voice over again, tell no one in the towns where we are. She is literally sprinting down this road, and then she comes to a huge hedge, it's as if someone doesn't want anything behind it to be seen. Hmm. And now we get to see what's in Edward and Tabitha's box. They open the box and we hear more stories and get more details on a couple of the stories that we've heard already. And these stories have a very modern feel. In the box, there are newspaper clippings along with a picture with some very familiar faces. Except it's not a picture from the 1800s. Oh, no, no, no. I'm guessing late 70s to early 80s. These people all lived in Philadelphia, and all of them lost loved ones to murder. Alice is holding an infant Lucius in her arms, and he is in his early to mid-20s now. So it's been about 20 to 25 years that they've been there, which works if it's actually 1997 or even 2004 when the movie came out. My best guess is that they were part of a support group, and Edward, being very, very rich, having inherited his father's estate, came up with this plan. Flee the outside world, live in a cloistered utopia where the evils of the world can't touch them. Uh, how's that working out for you guys? <laughs> Ivy scales the wall, and surprise, it's the present day. A ranger rolls up in a Land Rover with, wait for it, Walker Wildlife Preserve emblazoned on the side. He finds her and asks where she's from. And all she says is the woods. He's like, you live in there? And she affirms that she lives in there. She tells the ranger that she needs a doctor and hands him the paper and the watch that she's offering as payment. This guy is just slightly taken aback. Yeah. Ivy asks the ranger his name. He says his name is Kevin. 
And she is also a little taken aback. She says, you have kindness in your voice. I did not expect that. Well, duh. She spent her entire life being told that these people were bad news. And the very first person she encounters is just oozing with empathy. He seems compelled to help her. He has no clue what's going on, but he's taking the situation very seriously. He tells Ivy that there are guard shacks every 10 miles around the perimeter of the preserve. Every 10 miles. How big is this place? Um, and that they keep medical supplies there in case of things like animal bites and minor injuries. I have no doubt that Edward knew that they had everything on the list. He then asks her name. <laughs> and she tells him. And you want to talk about being a little taken aback? Mm. Now, Kevin is back at the guard shack acting nonchalant and doing a terrible job of it. His supervisor is there. I can only assume that this is his supervisor, but he's, some, he's somebody that's a little bit bigger yeah. than a supervisor here. But um, he's just sitting there reading the paper and he asks what's going on with the girl, at which point Kevin makes up a story about some lost teenagers. M. Night only refers to this guy in the script as the man on the walkie. And he also plays the man on the walkie. Mm. This guy, obviously, though, has more clout than a ranger. And he seems to know more about the situation than he lets on. What he says to Kevin is really interesting here. He says, can I give you some advice? Don't get into conversations. You start talking. You start getting into how some estate is paying all of us. And no one's allowed to go in there and disturb the animal sanctuary. People's interests get piqued. It's a really easy gig, Kevin. Maintain and protect the border. That's it. A few years ago, it got out in the papers that some government guys had been paid off to keep plane routes from flying over this place. That was a very stressful time for me. Don't cause me any troubles. Do not get into conversations. And that's all this guy says. I'd love to know who this guy actually is and what his relationship is to the walkers, but this is all we are ever going to get to say. Some estate is paying all of us. Jesus, how much fucking money does this guy have? His father must have been insanely rich. So, still acting very nonchalant, Kevin quietly grabs a bunch of glass jars from the fridge, and these are all antiseptics and antibiotics and a few other sundry items, and he takes them and makes his exit. The man on the walkie, Kevin finally calls him Jay, ignores everything and asks no more questions. But, you know, the thing is, Jay knows. He totally knows. The last interaction these two have is Kevin asking him where this ladder is that he needs and comes up with this cockamamie story about having to fix a sign. So Jay tells him where the ladder is. And the next thing that we see is this ladder propped up against the wall. So... Clearly, he's helping Ivy back into the woods where she belongs. Right. This is going to end kind of the same way it began. We see another reflection in the stream. This time, it's not the ominous red color we saw in the beginning. It's Ivy making her way back in her mustard yellow robe, and she seems a lot less stressed at this point. Poor Kevin. This guy has no fucking clue. All he knows is that he gave some girl some antibiotics and let her back over the wall. That's <laughs> all he knows or will ever know. So at this point, Ivy returns to the village. The truth about Noah's fate is being made known. They know what he did and that it cost him his life. His parents, immediately, they start wailing and grieving. Edward promises to bring back his body and give him a proper burial. I have to wonder if Ivy would eventually put two and two together, but we never find out. The movie is almost over. Edward comforts the Percys by telling them, your son has made our stories real. By all accounts, even after being told the Santa Claus-level truth about the creatures, 
Ivy knows what she experienced. She didn't know it was Noah and now has quote unquote proof that the rumors are true. This does work out well for Edward, doesn't it? The movie ends with Ivy telling Lucius she's back. That's it. Cut directly to the credits. Does he live? Does he die? We don't know. But here's what we do know, or what we should glean from this whole thing. The parallels between what happens in the village and what pretty much all religions do to maintain their following is staggering. First and foremost, there's the element of fear. And to their credit, the elders in this movie went way further than idle threats about hell to keep the people in line. They devised a truly exceptional and intricate ruse. Fear keeps people from entering the woods. Fear keeps them in line. And in exchange for their compliance, they get a strong sense of community, have strong bonds with their families and friends, and enjoy a life that by all appearances exists outside evil apostate society. Next is the indoctrination of the young. Children in the village are bombarded with the lore of those we don't speak of and believe it implicitly. There is no counterpoint. They are told that this is true and no one even thinks to question. All they can do is be afraid. And just like religion, the fears are baseless. The creatures can't harm them. The sounds from the woods are all manufactured and they leave sides of lamb out for the creatures, just like kids leave cookies out for Santa Claus. The way the ruse is perpetrated is basically identical. Someone then comes and takes it away, and it looks like it was taken by the creatures. I find it ironic that Edward still thinks that they're quote-unquote protecting innocence in the face of cold-blooded murder and in an atmosphere of lies and deceit that literally rob people of their freedom of choice. Even the Amish are given a choice. They're allowed to experience modern life and decide if the plain life is what they want to embrace. What such options are these people given? People born into the village never have the first clue what the outside world looks like. They are indoctrinated from birth to believe that happiness can only be found in this community and that the world outside their cloister is a scary, threatening place, even if you manage to get past the creatures who govern the woods. And when you look beyond the religious parallels, you learn one other important lesson here. You can run from situations, but not human nature. All the evils the elders retreated to this place to escape have followed them there. Removing themselves from society has not afforded them sanctuary from the very things that they fled from. Murder, jealousy, greed, covetousness, unconscionable hubris, all the things that exist out there and led to the personal tragedies they've suffered have found their way in. And the larger the community grows, the bigger those problems are destined to become. In short, you can't escape human nature by denying yourself a sense of normalcy. Coming out from among them doesn't change what we essentially are. All it does is create an environment for every aspect of human nature, both good and bad, to replicate itself in a different environment. You don't protect innocence through lies and deceit. In fact, you can't protect it at all. People, no matter what influences they have on their lives, are going to be the people they are regardless of their environments or the rules they choose to be governed by. So let's forget about the notion of innocence and focus instead on being better humans in the space we occupy. We will all face personal tragedies at one point or another. Many of us will face more than a few, but we learn nothing by running from them. We learn by facing things like death and loss head on. We learn by accepting that things like personal loss are part of life and that we cannot escape the inevitability of it. We learn by dealing with grief and anger productively and proactively. 
To me, it makes much more sense to learn how to deal with the things life throws our way in practical terms than it does to run from them because you think you can leave them behind you. Guess what? You can't. Life follows us everywhere. The villagers did what pretty much everyone who adopts Christianity does. They traded the sorrows and pain that held their emotions captive for another seemingly more appealing brand of bondage. The thing about emotional bondage is that it only gets harder to escape over time. The good news is that we can make better choices. We can embrace life and all the ups and downs that come with it. We can accept the reality of loss and embrace the imperfect nature of the world we live in, because learning how to do that will help us navigate our way out of places of mental and emotional bondage. It will help us grow as individuals. It will help us appreciate the good things that find their way into our lives. But most of all, it will help us stop looking for escape routes from our own realities and help us get and stay unbound. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.